Over the last few weeks, I've been exploring a new audio distribution platform intended for podcasters. Caster is your sonic interface for the blockchain. It allows you to embed an MP3 file into a transaction with a money button wallet via Bitcoin SV. Once the transaction is complete, listeners can stream the track in a browser right on the site. I've been testing the fidelity of uploads with a few different types of audio. The first piece I uploaded was a spoken word performance with sound effects present at times. One really great feature on Caster is the ability to select the compression quality of the upload. This, of course, can alter the listener's experience. However, the two options are 20 megabytes and 50 megabytes, which is a fairly decent range for a speaking voice. A file under those thresholds will not be compressed and will have full fidelity provided you selected the correct target. Caster is fairly bare bones at the moment, but provides fields for title, description, and album art for each upload. User profiles are fairly standard, providing options for a title, description, category, and language, as well as a channel art upload option as well. However, aspects of these options are not yet integrated into the front end. It is also nice that RSS distribution is on the developer's radar too. Because these files are stored on the blockchain, the MP3 files are available to download. I was able to compress two hours of the most recent Party Line Chat broadcast down to about 41 megabytes, resulting in an upload that cost approximately nine United States dollars, including a cut for the developers. If you would like to cheer for a broadcast, you'll need a money button wallet as this functions like tipping, sending approximately a one cent transaction to the content owner. Head over to my account to have a listen and check out Caster for yourself. 1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition. Over 125 years ago, the Columbian Exposition was staged in Chicago on Lake Michigan's shoreline. Visitors from around the country and world were first introduced to many industrial technologies and commercial offerings that would shape 20th century culture. This book explores a collection of event photographs and juxtaposes them against a set of modern images to catalog the living remnants in art and architecture around the city as a legacy to the 1893 World's Fair. 1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition, now available from Amazon. Audiobook version available soon. The ability to editorialize and share photos is integral to our social experiences on the web. We expect to have this functionality. Yours.org adds a layer of economics to content distribution on social platforms. We've already seen how quickly people gravitate to exciting projects that allow them to express their ideas graphically when I explored Bitstagram a few weeks back. Because it is fun and doesn't encumber users with the weight of membership, they are willing to pay to play. If you have been posting to Bitstagram, that means you already possess Bitcoin SV. Maybe you've even earned a little from your posts and are looking for another way to use the tokens to encourage the creation of media and freelance publishing. Helping creatives to build audiences away from advertising-based networks like Facebook, who operate as visibility gatekeepers, is valuable. If content producers can in small ways finance their creative process, they can use highly insightful monetary feedback as an instructive mechanism about which types of content to create or topics to address. It has certainly been true in relationship to my exploration of the Steemit platform. What originally was an extra outlet for my photography and writing in time led me to develop long-form editorial, pictorial, and videographic media that relays my personal life and interests. This occurred because people responded to the photography and the imagery gathered into video albums, 
but each community is different. It's not fair to judge the experience of one platform by the standards of another. This is perhaps doubly critical when comparing yours.org to Steemit's economic model. They are vastly different. Primarily, the variations deal with the Steam Network's proof-of-stake blockchain that rewards participants out of a pool of freshly minted Steam tokens. Yours.org, on the other hand, is financed only through user response. The money was taken from another user's wallet, which is built into the site. Before being tipped for posts I made to the blogging platform, I considered taking some spare BSV from my money button wallet to add to my Yours.org wallet. However, the community is still building momentum. What you choose to spend on content is your own choice. Point is, there isn't quite a constant flow of new posts just yet. It may be worthwhile to hang around and participate in a casual way. Mixing in the platform as an additional channel for content released elsewhere or a way to workshop ideas before you release them to your primary outlets. It's worth noting that yours.org does not currently integrate Money Button, but that functionality is on their roadmap. Both of these projects are being developed by some of the same folks. The community rising up around Money Button is impressive. Don't be surprised if you start seeing this payment application popping up around the web. What do you think of the recent uprising trend toward viewer-supported content platforms like Steemit or yours.org? Does it remind you of the pledge drives from PBS television or NPR broadcasting? Crowdfunding has certainly created its share of victories, and revivals, but are these the financing platforms that accurately model human nature? It's been an exciting week on Twitter for those following the Bitcoin SV community. There's a new image sharing platform that has been moving eyeballs. Bitstagram allows contributors to post their images to the Bitcoin SV chain using an interface similar to Instagram. The developer known as Unwriter has been on an absolute tear over the last few weeks, seemingly launching one project after another. I've posted consistently to Instagram over the years and really liked SteepShot when it launched in coordination with Steemit. As a photographer, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to give this project a little exploration time. While the options available to users are currently slimmed down to just four image variations, Bitstagram is an incredible proof of what can be accomplished on-chain. Without getting too technical, I hope to walk you through the basics of getting your images on Bitstagram via BSV. You won't get lost engaging the platform because there is only one upload option and four image variants that are automatically enabled via the browser. All the versions become available to viewers after they are loaded to the app. You're going to need to sign up for a money button account first. This process is fairly straightforward, but as always, use a unique password, and if you're ambitious, initiate a new email account. Posting is straightforward. It works like loading up a file to any other website you've used in the past. I've already loaded more than half a dozen images to Bitstagram, each costing only pennies. Now here's the big kicker for this platform. Tipping is built right in. As long as your money button wallet has BSV in it, you can actively tip contributors to Bitstagram. In fact, Unwritten and good friend Randy Eitzman sent a tip for posts I made to Bitstagram while I was researching it for this write-up. It's incredibly easy to commit something to the platform. Because posting is pay-to-play, it changes the relationship we have with our media. If it costs us money, the user, to interact with networks, how does this change the engagement mechanisms? How does this begin to change the advertising sphere? Plenty of questions are on the horizon as the real potential of blockchains become more evident. In the meantime, it's fun posting pictures to a photo sharing network that enables micropayments.
Hello, thank you for tuning in. My name is Michael Finney. Today we are joined by Kevin Pham. Can you tell us a little about yourself for the folks listening that may not know you from Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I think that's like my thing is that like I, I'm that annoying guy that will always try to get to the, you know, the core, you know, argument. I'm constantly trying to disrupt myself and, and keep on moving forward. And with that, you're always going to be unpopular because that's what it takes for you to, you know, stay ahead. I just have this contrarian streak in me where I'll go after whatever's pick. I'll pick up our whatever's popular. I'm trying to demystify, you know, like geopolitics and politics mm-hmm. by providing very, you know, simple natural laws that, you know, underlie um, all these things. And I think we've gotten to a, to a place where we've kind of forgotten, you know, these, how our body functions in a, in a primal way and we're not conscious to them. And when you're not conscious to them, you let, you let those things take over. What would you say is the primary goal for your activity on Twitter? I'm trying to destroy the entire idea of these abstract political theories and to look at things from a scientific mm-hmm. kind of atomic basis and looking at the human being as like the autonomic unit that, that makes up these, you know, large political structures. And in order for you to understand these political structures is to first understand you as a human. And then from there, you'll, yeah, you'll understand, you know, what's wrong with Bitcoin governance what's wrong with, you know, global governance and, you know, you know all, all that stuff. So let's talk about human nature and governance within the community of people that engage Bitcoin. There seems to be some friction regarding the capacity of an individual to excel in the face of collectivist sentiments. Would you speak on what you're observing? We think it's, you know, some, some type of new like political movement, but in reality, it, 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 it it's still based in the same, um, ideology that, you know, the poor and the weak are, are, are that way because they're being oppressed. Um, and then in Bitcoin, that same ideology kind of, uh, shapeshifted and took form into this, like, you know, the big miners are, are oppressing the poor, full node holders that are just trying to assert their sovereignty by downloading and verifying the blockchain and that these miners that are providing a service and making a lot of money are somehow evil now. And in reality, it's just based in self-preservation and and trying to remain relevant without doing the work and taking the risk. There's been a lot of talk on Twitter about your recent turn from BTC to BSV. Can you tell us what led you to this perspective change? Really, it's the ideological um, consistency um, for the first part, which is that, you know, uh, when uh, the B2X war happened, the BC, BCH, you know, secession happened, you know, the whole narrative was, you know, miners rule and Bitcoin consensus is, you know, decided by, you know, the, the hash power um, of the miners. And then when 
this whole hash war happened in BSV, um, the BS, the SV side was the one that was still consistently, you know, making the claim that miners are the ones that decide and they will, uh, you know, use their hash power to decide what information one can go to. And then BCH was hypocritical in saying that, no, you know, decentralization matters, people being able to run a full node that matters. Uh, And they were basically parroting the same narrative that they were vilifying when BTC used it. So that's, that's another example of people dropping their principles and appealing to, you know, uh, collectivism and egalitarianism in order to get their way or to stay in power. You know, there's that saying that, you know, you can't get a man to entertain an idea when his salary doesn't allow it to be so. Um, there was, there was a, Daniel Krawitz was a, kind of a thought leader of this in the, uh, the hold all forks thesis in which that, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, on the front lines fighting for one side or the other, you should, you know, kind of be an emperor and look at the forks like gladiators and you should just, uh, you know, bet on both and then let them duke it out. And then, uh, either way you win in the end, just kind of layman cryptocurrency investors. They love to pump up, you know, quote unquote, you know, innovations or things that sound look cool. Um, like the, the Ethereum community is, is notorious for this. And what's really happening is that investors think by, you know, um, you know, you know, pumping up, you know, this, this news and making the space look cool and innovative, then people will buy. Um, where I think that's kind of like short sighted to where that, um, at the end of the day, um, people that don't, don't care about Bitcoin that are using it to improve their business or improve their lives is the kind of the, the litmus test for a accretive kind of economic uh, activity. Have you explored any of the BSV projects from Unrider? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, they're completely um, kind of unique and orthogonal to what everybody else in the space is doing um, everything resembles, you know, um, the existing kind of computing stack, but using you know Bitcoin um, as a database. Another like fascinating thing is how quickly he's he's you know kind of pumping things out, um, and I think it's just uh, an example of you know doing things right the first time. What what it seems to me like is that you know. Um, BSB has this whole saying that, you know, the protocol set in stone, we're not going to change the protocol anymore. And basically it's that, you know, we, we did it right the first time and we're going to lock it into place. So that drives all the innovation and value creation and creativity onto the next layer, which is kind of like the, uh, layer that, uh, Unwriter is, um, is, is building on. A lot of what is being released by Unwriter and the BSV camp is delivering on the promises that were made by Ethereum. Yeah, yeah, no, there's, there is a, yeah, that's kind of been a meme thing, but, you know, when you see that, 
you know, it's possible to, uh, you know, upload code to the blockchain and string them together in a um, series of transactions. And then, you know, paying a, a node or a miner to, um, you know, process those transactions in like, you know, sequential orders. That's kind of like a, you know, decentralized uh, immutable world computer, right? Are you still paying attention to that project? Uh, less so, less so. Because I, yeah, it seems like, you know, they're, the ship has sailed. I mean, that thing has kind of like went its course and it sounds like they're just um, going on fumes right now. And yet, as we mentioned earlier, perhaps we're seeing some of the issues that have slowed Ethereum's progress being adopted by folks attached to the BTC narrative, and particularly those championing the Lightning Network. Perhaps this is exhibiting a natural course? Yeah, because, yeah, my, my take is that, oh, you know, capitalism, socialism, blah, 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 all this stuff is that, well, these are just, you know, like ideas, you know, these are just ideas. I mean, just um, think of new ideas and stuff like that. I was like, oh, these are, you know, these all like capitalism is is based in like human competition and um, needing to secure resources and to protect territory. Right. That's a very fundamental thing. Very, yeah, it's just a very natural thing. The politics evolves from the human nature layer. Their survival, your survival instinct is what is what, where, where everything flows from when people listen to this stuff, they don't want to hear that because they're still kind of in, in, they still have the belief that, Oh, I need to go make a technical or kind of, you know, economic argument where I think I'm getting to the root of it, which is kind of like our, our failings and, and, uh, letting, you know, our investments, you know, kind of hijack our, uh, you know, objectivity and making us act in, in weird ways. So my awakening to how susceptible we are to kind of, you know, collectivist slash slave morality slash kind of um, socialist thinking, even if we think that we're like totally against it. We are all susceptible to this, you know, envious, uh, envious, this, this envy of those who are successful. Rationally people see like, you know, socialism or collectivism and all that stuff is, uh, is, you know, irrational, but in reality, there's a, there's a rationality to it because it plays to your kind of survival instincts whenever you feel that you're being outcompeted or people think it's, it's a, yeah, it's an abstract ideology by some, you know, great thinker that, you know, people use. But the, the real reason why it's so powerful is because people are very susceptible. It's rooted in like human survival instincts. How do you believe this will play out over time? Whatever is new eventually becomes collective as more people start um adopting it and then inevitably you know it's just like you know that thing like a music festival or you know burning man or whatever it's cool and then it goes mainstream but it's not cool and everybody's like well how do you fix that well it's like 
no, it's just a constant process. And then you just constantly have to evolve and stay forward. Socialist and collectivist ideology, it, it's, it constantly kind of mutates and rebrands itself into something that we think is new. Why did you gravitate towards this perspective? I guess the thing that kind of like intrigues me the most is like the fallibility of like human behavior. And now everybody thinks like this is such a, uh, you know, such a rational, objective, technical or economic system. When in reality, it's still run by humans and somewhat governed by, you know, human relationships. And I think a lot of people are, have that as, as a blind spot. I have a saying that if you think you're different, you're not different. If you know you're the same, then you're different. Again, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Hopefully we can talk more soon. Hey, thanks for having me. If you appreciate content like this, please connect with me on your preferred social network. Hello and welcome to the program. This segment is an exploration of BSV wallets. I've reached out to a pair of developers that are responsible for the money button and hand cash wallets. We're going to hear from each of them. First up, Ryan Charles. Hey there, Ryan. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and what you're attempting with money button? Sure. Well, thanks for uh, for uh, talking with me, uh, Michael. Um, so my background in a nutshell is um, I'm someone who's been technical for my entire life, been programming since a young age. I had a bit of a divergent away from engineering and became a physicist for a while and nearly got a PhD in physics. But I was very excited about Bitcoin in 2011. And in 2013, I decided to quit my PhD in, Bitcoin, in, uh, sorry, in, in physics and go full-time Bitcoin. I worked at three different companies. I worked at BitPay, Reddit, and BitGo, each of which are kind of long stories in their own right. I then started a project that would, over the year, turn into Money Button. So the primary project we're working on right now is called Money Button. It is a simple payment. It's easy for developers to install it on applications and websites, and it's easy for users to swipe the, the button to, to send a payment. So what we're doing is, in a nutshell, we're solving the user experience problem for Bitcoin. And what would you say is the primary focus of the Money Button project? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the best way to look at it is, you know, we, we like the original Bitcoin protocol because we think that it can scale globally. And this is something that was a bit misunderstood in our opinion by most of the cryptocurrency industry for a lot of reasons that we can go into if you want to. It's, it's got a long and storied history, but there is something called the block size debate where people kind of disagreed about the right way to scale uh, Bitcoin. Well, we're firmly in the camp of uh, increasing the maximum block size. And effectively, all that means is that the way that Bitcoin wallets work exactly the same, no matter how many transactions are on the network. And from an economic perspective, what it means is that because the blocks are going to be really big, uh, Bitcoin is mined by professional businesses who have to develop infrastructure to be able to handle large blocks. And long term, the, the size of blocks will be extremely large. 
So what we're doing with Money Button is we're just using the protocol and we don't care about how the miners scale it. We need to know that it will work. We don't need to know the details. What we're doing is making sure that users have a good experience actually using Bitcoin. So we are a user experience focused company in the sense that the whole purpose of it is to make it possible to use it for people, to remove every barrier that people have from being able to use it and making it so that they can actually use Bitcoin. And that means doing things like being able to send money for low fees and writing data on chain that's permanent and immutable and authentic and things like this. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're solving the user experience problem of Bitcoin. How does it integrate with the web or mobile or the larger BSV ecosystem? Yeah, well, okay. For first of all, on web and mobile, I mean, web is the easiest one because it's literally an iframe. So you, we have we provide a snippet of code that you can actually copy and paste uh, into any website. So it's very, very easy to get going with Money Button. Um, we also have a very sophisticated API. So you'll realize that as you want to make something more sophisticated, we provide a lot of features. So we, we basically make it extremely easy to get going using it by just copying and pasting code. And then as you develop something more sophisticated, you can use our sophisticated API uh, to do that. Mobile is slightly harder because uh, you have to use a web view, but it is possible to integrate this into a, uh, a web app. And, and it's also possible to integrate it into basically anything that uses web technologies, which is these days pretty much any type of application can use it, um, depending on sort of how much work you're willing to do, just because web technologies are, uh, are sort of ubiquitous. Now, within the uh, Bitcoin SV ecosystem, um, I don't have hard numbers, but I think it's fair to say we are probably the most widely used wallet API in the ecosystem. There are many, many applications using Money Button as the basically the, the payment system of their application. Uh, we have hundreds of apps that are using it, and about five to ten of them are, are sort of quite large. So some of the largest applications like Twitch and Chain and Baymail are example applications that use Money Button, uh, you know, as, as sort of the, the wallet of their application. What can you tell us about the roadmap going forward for Money Button? We have not solved every user experience problem yet. So I don't want to go into details because basically we, we now consider that like proprietary information. Sure, that we, you don't have to don't give away any of the special sauce. Yeah, but I'll just say that, uh, look, I mean, something I've talked about extensively publicly is, you know, solve the onboarding problem. So the onboarding problem is basically what happens when a new user sees Button on a website and clicks it for the first time. In order to be able to use Money Button, they need to be able to get Bitcoin SV. And unfortunately, right now, that's extremely difficult. And there's no way we can solve this problem by ourselves. We need the collaboration of the entire industry to help us solve this problem. So fortunately, there's a one new website called buybsv.com, which partially solves this problem. They have a wonderful solution for people that live in Europe. It is possible to buy Bitcoin very quickly and inexpensively and easily in Europe. It only works in Europe to the best of my knowledge, and it doesn't even work everywhere in Europe. It does not work in the U.S. It doesn't work throughout most of the rest of the world. Um, there are complicated reasons for this that have to do primarily with uh, things like regulations and just policies that banks have. Um, so we need more businesses that provide on-ramps to Bitcoin SV. Another problem is that for people who are familiar, and I hate to sort of touch on the subject, but for various reasons, Bitcoin SV is not widely supported across cryptocurrency exchanges. So if we could just have greater support for Bitcoin SV on existing exchanges, that would help a lot. 
we're doing is doing everything we can the barrier to on. And so this includes things like partnerships, but it also includes technical solutions to uh, making it easier to get Bitcoin SV into the wallet and things like this. So without going into details, that's sort of the centerpiece of everything that we're doing is making it so that new users can start using Money Button as easily as possible. Are there any points that you feel weren't addressed in the earlier prompts or things that you think are important to mention that maybe you didn't get to go into detail about? Well, sure. I mean, I would just say that, uh, you know, this is kind of a sort of a complicated thing and I don't want to get into drama unless you want to, no, uh, but no, there's, no. you know, bit, yeah, no, I mean, uh, so the Bitcoin SV world, basically, I, I think people don't realize how advanced we already are. I mean, we have real apps that people are actually using uh, that really sets us apart from the rest of the industry. And we've already demonstrated the ability to scale much, much, much bigger than any of the other cryptocurrencies. So I think the thing that people should be aware of is, you know, there, there's a lot of men out there about cryptocurrency in general and Bitcoin SV specifically. So I encourage everyone to actually mind and, and take a look at what we're actually doing. So for the rest of the people in the crypto world, they seem to have very practically no idea how successful we already are with respect to real-world applications. So I, I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, you know, people should take a look at this stuff, and, and I think you'll find what I'm saying is correct, that uh, we're, we're way ahead of the rest of the industry. And, you know, basically, if, if you're someone that is building an application or creating a business or something like this, you should take a look at Bitcoin SV and you should take a look at Money Button because we're solving all of the most important problems. And the only reason why we're not sort of, sort of more uh, uh, sort of understood is because a lot of fake information on social media. I appreciate you talking with me today, and I think that people have a better understanding of your place within the BSV ecosystem and what Money Button is attempting. Great. Yeah, well, well thank you very much, Michael, for the opportunity to talk with you. The next segment is with Handcash developer Alex Agut. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, Alex. Will you tell me a little bit about your background and mm. what you are attempting with Handcash? Yeah, well, my background, I'm a product designer. Uh, I didn't finish my degree. That's, that's just one, one point. <laughs> um, uh, what we are trying to accomplish with Handcash, and I say we because, well, we started, uh, I started this project along with my, with my co-founder, Rafa. And, well, we, we thought that Bitcoin was a great technology, but the, uh, once we started learning about Bitcoin and the possibilities of it, we saw that the app ecosystem was crap. And the tools for actually building an app were very crappy. And we wanted to offer something unique and different. And, you know, we came to the conclusion of, well, we asked ourselves, what do they call it electronic peer-to-peer -peer cash if it doesn't work like cash at all? If it feels more like a, like a kind of a private bank account aimed for developers. So we said, why, why don't we... Create a money app that is as easy to use as, uh, you know, like Cash App or Venmo or, or any of these apps that people already use. And let's see if it's possible to do it with Bitcoin and using NFC technology and all this stuff to do cool things with it. And yeah, we started with a small MVP, a small demo. It ran on BTC, the first version. We did BTC very fast because it was, you know, it was 
back in November 2017 when the fees skyrocketed and we realized that we couldn't get a get, uh, good user experience with that. And that's how our, our journey started with that. And yeah, our goal basically is to create a new kind of way of using money by uh, using Bitcoin in the background to create great apps and, and tools. Very nice. Mm-hmm. There are obviously a, a couple of wallets in the BSV community. What would you say is the primary focus of Handcash? I think it's about. I think we have a different focus from the. I think our different differentiator with Handcash is that we are not trying to force Bitcoin into people or educate people into Bitcoin, but to do it the other way around. We are trying to create something that's familiar enough for people to use, and not. It's not aimed for Bitcoiners, uh, but we are trying to you know, do the best we can uh, to get the, um, you know, the respect for long-time Bitcoiners and, and most of them appreciate what we are trying to do here. And we want to be the product that they recommend to their to their friends and families to get started with Bitcoin. How does it integrate with the web mobile or larger BSV ecosystem? Uh, we are working on something. We launched back in November 2018. We launched something that was called Cashboard at the time. We have a new name for it now, but we still haven't disclosed that yet. We will have. We will make an announcement soon. Um, uh, Cashboard was the first login system for Bitcoin. So now uh, everything uh, everybody gives uh, takes for granted what you know. Uh, money button does with signing with money button and all the stuff with Twitch and all these applications, but we actually were the first to first ones to do it. And you actually could do payments without uh, without even being present in the website. Like when you were uh, watching videos with Streamanity, you were you were being charged uh, by the minute, or you you don't have to swipe or scan things, and it just worked. So, but the first version was a little bit crappy because also the the uh, the first version of our wallet, I mean the 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 beta, it wasn't it wasn't super flexible, and we didn't have enough control so we could create a great user experience with Cashport. So we decided to just rebuild all the ecosystem that we were uh, trying to build in a way that makes sense, and we can. Uh, all the pieces fit together much nicer. So Handcash basically will uh, is going to become an account for Bitcoin, and the the wallet side is going to fade away uh, gradually. Very nice. So there is a plan to extend beyond definitely, the yeah. mobile experience. Oh yeah, definitely. Excellent. Now we are working on it. Uh, the, it's our top priority, in fact. Very good, because I think that there is. Um, a large set of tools that are emerging from the BSV developer community mm-hmm. that are, uh, let's say, more internet or web web content layer focused, and I think yeah, uh, we are being taking is, is good. We are taking a different approach with that. We, hmm, I, I don't want to give details, but no, no, no it's we okay. are you taking a, we are we are we are taking a different approach. We see that there are two main ways of developing Bitcoin apps right now, which are 
you know, these open source protocols that you kind of have to get like five or six of them together. Like I get Bitbus and Planaria and this and that and, um, and Datapay and MoneyButton and I mix them all together and then I can create a Bitcoin app. The problem is that, you know, interoperability is not great and you still have to learn a lot of stuff about Bitcoin and and maintain all this infrastructure. And then there's this other side, which are the buttons, uh, like like money button or relay one or the fast pay button, all these buttons, which basically are uh, the UI widgets that, you know, they are easy to integrate because it's just copy and paste a little bit of HTML code. Pro- there are a lot of problems with them, is that, you know, you're restricted to the web browser and uh, you know, it's not very flexible if you want to do other stuff that doesn't require the user to to actually take action, like, for example, swiping a button. So if you want to do automated payments, uh, they don't work. So there are many problems with that, too. So we kind of give it a thought for a while, and we we think there's a new kind of product that can fit uh, bo- uh, can do both things much better than the protocols and the buttons and be even much easier than both of them combined and also provide a better, a better more immersed uh, experience with the handcash ecosystem. Would you tell us a little bit about the roadmap going forward? You don't have to necessarily reveal hmm. anything yeah. that is behind the scenes, but maybe um, a little bit about what you're hearing in regards to users' requests for hmm. hand cash or some, some features oh, sure. that you think might be hmm. uh, around the corner that people are asking for. Hmm. Yeah, many people. Uh, there are many, many small tweaks that we are going to impl- implement in the coming weeks. Is that we have focused on the on the migration side because it, it, we just couldn't do a direct update from the old app. Be- because you know, it, it it's a totally different app structure. The wallet structure is totally different. The security, that everything is, it's brand new. So we just couldn't update the app, and so we had to do all these migration process, which was a little bit more. I wouldn't say complicated. Yeah, it was complicated, but also, you know, was tricky in some parts because uh, there, you know, especially in Android, uh, there are thousands of different devices and configurations and software and uh, you know it was a very tricky process but most of most of all migration um, processes have have you know were successful in within a minute or something and didn't have any issue but you know the people had a little bit of issues well we have upgraded support so we could help them so no, most of them are already set up. So we now that we have the migration, the migration part is is under control. We are going to start adding these other uh, nece- very necessary uh, features like biometrics lock, which is the um, you know uh, you will have your handcash account locked and you will be able to unlock it with your touch ID or face ID or whatever you have in your phone. Uh, we are going to also add a very soon support for uh, family and business accounts. So with your same phone number and and the same 12 words, you can actually add more accounts. And let's say that you have a master account that can recover all of them. And, you know, it's safer for 
for uh, everyone else uh, in your family, and you don't need extra phone numbers for that. Um, then we other stuff that we are going to oh we are going to improve you know the in the payment history we are going to make it very easy for you to extract uh, all your payments in a way that you can just give to your accountant we think that's very important and there are many features that we are going to add uh, but they are related to the new version of of cashport. Mm-hmm. So I cannot talk about them, but yeah, it's going it. to be, but it's going to be very, very cool once it's done. Are there any last points that we didn't address that you think are critical to talk about or mention that you didn't get to previously? I don't know. To be honest, is that people uh, tend to ask us many tech-related questions about how it works, whatever. But you know, we are maybe it's because we we are not. Bitcoiners from you know from since 2011 or something that uh, we are newcomers to this and we have a very different approach on how to build a product on you know which what kind of things we we share with others which uh, so you know actually it's much better if we can just focus on you know what can you do with handcash and is it safe of course it's safe and can you send money very fast? Yeah, you can. So, I mean, we tick all the boxes in, in terms of of a good Bitcoin experience. And I, I don't think that people should care that much about, you know, how we or other companies handle UTXOs or something. But I understand that we are in a phase which is, this is, you know, very, uh, most people here are very enthusiastic about this technology and want to know all these details. But so you know, uh, we are always open to discuss and comment our view on stuff. But ultimately, uh, we just want to provide the best user experience, and we are not. We, we don't feel that like we are constrained to old Bitcoin dogmas or the way of the old way of doing things. Very good. Well, thank you for talking with me today, Alex, and I appreciate your time. I think that we've all learned a little bit about Handcash. It's always good to okay. be able to talk with the developer. So I appreciate your time. Great. I hope this has been an informative segment for you. I appreciate you joining the broadcast, and we'll talk again soon. My name is Michael Finney. Be good out there.